Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. I'm here today with Greg Cooper. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Walter. <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about how you started in the asset management industry? We had some former guests on here that started with, you know, creating banks at eight. What, what were you doing at eight? I certainly wasn't creating banks, uh, probably more surfing and and uh, that kind of stuff up, up on the, the beaches on the central coast than, than anything. Um, I mean, my career in investment really started in the latter stages of high school. I was at one stage looking at becoming a, an accountant um, and then my maths teacher at the time had said, um, have you thought about actuarial studies? Um, I didn't even know what one was at that point in time. <laughs> and, you know, and so I looked it up and things kind of sort of went from there. So um, that I suppose that was the, the real genesis of things, year 11 and 12 at high school. Yeah. So how do you transition from an actuary training to an investment career? So, I mean, I started out in the more traditional actuarial fields. I was working for Taos Perrin at the time as a you know defined benefit actuary. And it was at the, at the point in time, it was in the early 90s when the SG was just coming into play. Uh, defined benefit plans, you know, some were being wound down, but there was a lot of work to do in the DB space. But as SG kind of kicked in, then there was a whole pile of, you know, actuarial work to do around, you know, justifying minimum contribution levels and so forth. Um, and then, um, you know, one day, one of the investment guys, um, had come over to in the investment asset consulting area, had come over and asked me if I was interested in in doing some research, and it was on managed futures at the time, and um, and and I kind of said I said yes, and <laughs> uh, and started doing, it and I really enjoyed it, and that was kind of the first foray into investment consulting, and so sort of from starting out in the actuarial field, uh, I was lucky enough to get offered a, a role up in Hong Kong with with Towers, and I, I sort of took the view that the traditional actuarial work was 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 a good mainstay but was not likely to be your growth engine and um, moving into the investment space was was a lot more interesting and um, it also worked from a commercial perspective yeah did you end up doing anything with those managed futures research uh, well a, a, apart from it was kind of the early stages of hedge funds I guess yes. um, and it was at the point where saying you know alternatives kind of had a place in a portfolio that was the, that was the primary emphasis of the research um, so um, you know it was interesting and obviously you know alternatives nowadays have become a much bigger much bigger part but back then it was really just looking at that small hedge fund light type diversifying characteristics and see whether they fitted in a portfolio yeah and then from there um, you went to Schroeder's and started doing Japanese equities why <laughs> Japanese equities <laughs> yeah good question it, it was really you know partly as a, a function of the the role that was there at the time and and Schroeder's 
Um, you know, I come out of asset consulting. I was much more interested in working in the in the in asset management side of things. The the role, while it was in Japanese equities, it was much more about the product side of things. So it was more like being in charge of the business of running um, an asset management um, sort of sub strategy, if you like, rather than um, specifically worrying about you know Japanese equities or European equities. Um, but it was very interesting because at that point in time, Schroders was the biggest manager of Japanese equities. Um, you know, you were just coming out of the '90s, which had been a, a, a bit of a lost decade. Um, but but in the latter part of the '90s, you know, Japan had taken off with um, the likes of SoftBank and so forth. So you know, there was this real kind of boom happening, and it was just a really interesting time to to be involved in 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 the market but particularly in Japan. Yeah. Any views on Japanese equities today? Uh, well, it hasn't been a terribly good investment <laughs> since that time. I remember um, one day sitting with one of the team and he said, um, he said, oh, you know, he said, I started in Japanese equities in 1986 and the market's pretty much at the same level it is <laughs> it was then. And I think you can always say the same now. So, But it's, you know, it's a very interesting case study in what happens in a deflationary environment. And, you know, when assets get overvalued, you know, you can have, everyone thinks that equities kind of go and, you know, 10 years in equities, you'll make your money, but, you know, you'll make money. Um, I was just about to say, did I just hear you say that equities don't go up always? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, you know, and it's a fantastic case study. But also one, I mean, sort of investment aside, it's a good one to think about that, you know, despite, um, you know, the economic criteria not looking that good, um, you know, the social cohesion in Japan and everything else is held together very well. And so, you know, life isn't all about just economics. There's, there's more to it than, uh, than that. Sorry, all the economists. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent uh, almost 20 years at Troidus, um, climbed up to be uh, the CEO of the Australian business and also had a global distribution role. What are some of the, the highlights um, you look back on your career and also do you have any tips for aspiring CEOs? I, I suppose in terms of highlights, you know, it was just, it was fantastic and still is fantastic being involved in, in, in sort of the dynamism that is the whole investment marketplace. I mean, in particular, just look at, I mean, not just Australia, look globally, but certainly in Australia, you know, the rate of change that's taken place with funds and, you know, back in the, the late 90s, um, early 2000s, you know, there was obviously a much larger number of very, very small funds. And you look at where we've come to now, and we're having conversations about internalizing and, you know, financing specific assets and, you know, the size of the asset pools and so forth. So I would say, you know, over that whole span, it's just been a very exciting time. And I think that will continue. It's no less exciting looking forward than it has been in the past. But just the sheer growth of the industry has, has, has been fantastic. In terms of some particular highlights, I mean, I always quite enjoyed um, standing back and looking at, at sort of the way the industry was was developing and, and coming up with suggestions for maybe how things could be done better or, or, or where, you know, the industry had adopted certain practices that, that I didn't think were the right sorts of practices. And it was much more fun kind of standing back and trying to point those out and offer suggestions for better ways forward rather than just joining the chorus of, of, of yeah. um, you know, salespeople out there. Can you give an example of that? Probably, I mean, the key one that, you know, and I write a lot of research papers around around this is, is the concept of around sort of objective-based investing and the idea that benchmarks and the whole strategic asset allocation process, which we'd grown up with in the 80s, didn't always work. And you had, and Japan is a great case in point, you know, a fixed strategic asset allocation with a large exposure to equities through the 90s in Japan killed you. Um, and so, you know, that that to me is, you know, it's, it's resonated very well in the industry. And I think it's a key part of sort of thinking about how to do things differently. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, sort of... It's it's not to say that strategic asset allocation 
is that that style of investing is bad. It's just to say that I think we've moved on from there and there are better ways to think about this and there's some consequences that come from that and it's worth bearing in mind the consequences. Yeah. So in your answer, it, it sort of shows that you, you've always been quite keen on fostering a culture where it's open for discussion and there's pretty much no topic of debate. Why, why is that uh, so important? To my mind, you know, we work in an industry where there are lots of really intelligent people and no single person has all the right answers. So the more you can foster debate um, and the best way to foster that debate is to have a fairly transparent and, and, and open culture, then ultimately you get a better outcome. And it might be sort of painful in the near term to hear, you know, your particular idea shouted down or what you're doing, you know, isn't, you know, doesn't resonate with everyone. But I think fundamentally it gives you much better outcomes. And when, when people are you know, more open, transparent, and in particular prepared to, to, to bear criticism to their ideas, that's how, you, that's how you drive change and move things forward. So yep. you, know, you asked about sort of tips for aspiring sort of CEOs, and that would be you know, a very clear one to me is, is don't be afraid of what others think and try and draw out that. And certainly don't create a culture where, you know, yours or a small number of views preside. Um, you, you want to create a culture where you hear right through an organisation because, and particularly today, like the world's changing so much. Sometimes the best ideas come from, you know, some of your really junior people who are right at the coalface. So you yeah. want you want to make sure those ideas get aired and, and, and have as much resonance as, you know, some of the more experienced ones. Yeah, so is that a matter of staying competitive or is it also more generating uh, sustainability within a business that you can see risks or potential challenges coming that are further ahead? I think it's both. I, th I think, you know, th this industry is nothing if not cyclical. We see markets are very cyclical. You know, performance of, of asset managers is very cyclical. You know, the active industry is probably having a pretty hard time of it at the moment. I see that as a very cyclical outcome. And I just think that if you're not open to, you know, sort of change happening, then, you know, particularly when times are good, and that's often the time where it's hardest to make changes in an organisation because everything seems to be going well. But that that is, is often and always the most dangerous time when everything's going really well because you tend not to see the risk. So just trying to, you know, and it's not to say you get it right all the time, definitely not, and it's difficult, absolutely, um, but at least, you know, keep your eyes open. So one of these big topics um, we've recently spoken about is the functioning of the public market, and we see that more companies stay longer private. There seems to be a bit of a challenge in raising capital through the public markets, what is your view on that? I think you have a bit of a, an idea that maybe the public markets aren't what they used to be. Yeah, look, I, I think, I wouldn't say the public markets are broken, but but I do think there are some real issues in the way public markets are functioning. And and if, if one goes back and sort of says, well, what was the point of a public market? It was to allow, you know, capital to be... Um, held in the hands of a very, very um, heterogeneous group of, of individuals and for, for new capital formation to, to happen. You know, the way the broader investment market has, has changed is you've got a smaller number of very large holders and almost by definition, those holders end up becoming more passive in their equity holdings. They have to become much more active in a governance sense um, to, to compensate, but they become much more passive in terms of their, their equity holding just because they have to be. So I think that 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 has has changed the way you know public markets function and will continue to change them. And at the same time, you know whether it's regulation or or, or other things, um, it's sort of driving you know how new capital gets formed. People uh, are more prepared to sort of 
sort of keep their companies private and accept some of these large investors because they just don't need to go to the public markets um, and the private markets tend to give them a bit more flexibility. So I think that's changing the whole dynamics of it. Where I see a real danger is in the smaller end of the corporate capital formation process where, you know, how do new ideas get funded? And, and I think, you know, in other jurisdictions, particularly in the US, where they have a really well-formed venture capital industry, um, we don't have that. And I think there's a danger in Australia that not having a well-formed or even a, you know, barely call it embryonic VC-type industry means that there'll be lots of good ideas that get starved of capital um, and potentially go offshore. And that's bad in the long term for the economy and, and bad certainly for those funds in the long term. So to what degree is this also the influence of quantitative easing? Because you could make the argument that, well, it's easier to raise capital from the private markets when capital is so cheap. But once that goes away, then perhaps the public markets start functioning again the way they should be? Well, there's, there's certainly more capital around. There's no question about it, just given what's happening in terms of QE. But but whether we have QE or not, um, you will still have larger asset pools. So in a relative sense, you know, you could just have to look at the Australian market. You know, the top 10 asset pools, you know, represent a significant chunk of the Australian equity market. So uh, that feature occurs no matter what with or without QE. So I think, I think you know, QE has pumped, yes, more capital in the system but I wouldn't blame QE for where we are. And, and I don't mean blame in a negative sense. I mean, it's just where we are is a function of the rise of of, of, um, of large asset pools. And that's that's not a bad thing by any stretch. Yeah. Um, it probably leads to, you know, better overall capital allocation decisions because they're being made more professionally rather than by, you know, a vast number of, of more amateurs. But, um, but, it, but it does have that consequence of potentially, certainly in Australia, starving the more junior end of the market of capital. The other consequence is, is that there's more money flowing into passive. And you have did some research around how this could potentially also distort markets, especially the public markets, where they come up with all sorts of different flavors of essentially similar indices. But it also then channels potentially funds to particularly a couple of companies that occur often in, in certain indices. And basically get funding on the basis of that rather than of their fundamentals. Yeah, so I thought like any any capital allocation process that's rules based is prone to prone to some form of danger. Uh, so if you just keep following those rules blithely, um, and the whole, remember the whole point of passive was about allocating, you know, in a in a certain way, in a market cap weighted sense across the broader economy almost, um, and it works when you've got very large and diverse equity markets but gradually as the proportion that is passive becomes larger and larger and indeed in fact in certain markets like Australia where they're sort of more concentrated you know that can have a consequence that it starts to distort you know certain companies in the way that they're weighted within the indices and then I think the rise of passive as a sub um, uh, I don't use don't like the word asset class but but where you get like you know sort of uh, a passive exposure to a certain thematic um, that then overweights the companies with no real bearing on their economic impact um, and and you just get this weight of money and then the other passive money comes in and has to allocate more to it because it's got a higher weight and so you can end up with a with a disproportionate allocation um, in certain companies and you've seen that I think in you know, some of the tech names um, and even some of the dividend payers. Whenever a thematic comes through, uh, it gets a lot of money and then by definition, those companies get pushed up in price um, and get overvalued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can remember that at one stage I saw there was a, a sushi ETF coming out and I was wondering if that's... Uh 
really a product the world needs. But yeah, I mean, those are, those are marketing concepts. You know, the idea is that Passive was meant to be low-cost exposure to a broader group of investments, and I think that's been sort of slightly skewed when you start talking about yeah. real flavor of the month Passive strategies. So the other argument for passive investing is that it's simple. It, uh, it simplifies the investment process. And often when there's too much complexity in a portfolio, it's hard to keep track of it all and also to uh, basically communicate it to stakeholders. How do you look at complexity? Are we giving up too much by just having passive strategies? Look, I, and, and passive has a very good place in some portfolios. And, and you know, bear in mind that actually the bigger investors, as we've just talked about, have, have virtually no choice but to hold passive or quasi-passive exposures. Um, but the, the, the point that I would make about passive is that no investor is truly passive. Um, you have money coming in if you're in your accumulation phase. You have money going out if you're in a decumulation phase. So you have to manage the, the cash flows and where you allocate capital to and take it from. Shouldn't be entirely a passive decision. You should have some view on on where you know what price you're paying for assets. Um, you know, and particularly when you're allocating amongst equities, bonds, property, um, you know, cash, whatever, you, you should have some bearing. So you can't be entirely passive, I think, in a total portfolio context. Um, and even where you are, those big passive holders have to take a much more active role in a governance sense. So, you know, to me, passive is just a, you know, it's a, it's a simple way of implementing a certain part of your investment strategy, but it's not your investment strategy um, it's right. just a way of implementing a piece of the investment strategy um, and as long as you bear the total portfolio in mind and your objectives and all that kind of stuff passive has a has a has a place to play in that but it's but it's not the answer to everything so you're not concerned about the predictions that i think it is by 2021 we will see more money in passive than in active not at all and i think again i would i would sort of come back to the point about markets being somewhat cyclical um, and i think the passive will rise just because active you know, probably had proportionately too large a share. Um, but there's a point where passive can't, you know, you can't have 100% passive or the markets don't function. Um, yeah. So, you know, and whether that, I don't know whether that number's, you know, 40, 50, 60, whatever. Um, um, and I kind of almost, you know, it's it's not that relevant because we'll yeah. never get to really high levels just because something will happen that causes a change and the cyclicality will kick in. Yeah. You mentioned that cyclicality. Um, looking at investment styles, value hasn't worked for probably the past decade. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Is that something that is structural or is that cyclical? Look, you can make an argument for both. I mean, I've seen plenty of arguments about it being structural just because of the the way value is defined. And I think, you know, if we think about value in a, you know, sort of book value context or, a, you know, or in businesses which have, you know, high tangible assets and low intangibles, um, then certainly there's this you know that's you know uh, there's a change that's taken place in markets where intangibles are now you know of extreme importance and so how you define value i think has probably changed over the course of that but uh, but at, you know value as an investment philosophy is you know a very sensible strategy buy things that are cheap i mean like it kind of makes intuitive sense and i don't think that will ever go away i'd be far more concerned about buy things that are expensive um, yeah. <laughs> buying things that are cheap hey, but values also had you know it's had long periods where it doesn't work now, again that's the cyclicality of markets yeah but it is within these big technology companies where there's so much depending on the ip that that arguably it is harder to value 
what an IP is actually worth and when it's at a discount or not. So I, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's the issue is is the definition of value and how do you how do you place a value on certain of these organisations is the more mm. difficult thing. Um, but also too, I mean, I, I think certainly at the moment markets have gotten a bit carried away and whether it's QE or, you know, the some of the, the passive bits that we talked about or, or just sort of momentum more generally encouraging more investors to mm. invest in it. It's, it's, yeah, it could be a whole combination of things, but it's quite clearly that there are some levels of what I would call exuberance in certain parts of the marketplace. Um, and while that hurts in a value context, you know, value is always going to be, the, or any investment style, um, hurts the most at its peak. Yeah, um, uh, or at its trough, I should say. You know, when the when the alternative is at its peak, that's that's the point of maximum pain. So, do you think that the uh, process of value can be adjusted to reflect the current market conditions, or, or do you get very quickly to a point where you basically have style drift? I, I think I'd be very careful about saying current market conditions because because that that I think does infer style drift. Uh, I think it's more about you know making value. Uh, work for the nature of markets and recognizing that the term of value and not, you know, particularly again this rise of intangibles on the balance sheet uh, requires maybe a bit of a different way of thinking. But I'm sure there's plenty of value managers have already all over that and captured it. And some of these things probably still look really expensive. So um, yeah, I, I think I think you know again styles are cyclical and value and quality in particular. You know, if I had to have a bias in my portfolio, it would be slightly biased to value and quality than I would be to certainly to momentum. <laughs> So one of the things that you, you're interested in is uh, more in this private market aspect. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Well, it really comes back to the whole um, sort of VC space and how do you encourage better capital formation? Um, and particularly, as I said, in Australia, I think, you know, you've got a, a well-established VC market um, in, the, in the States, potentially sort of um, as the assets have grown in that space, probably, you know, uh, managers charging too much for the, for the service, much like sort of what happened. I think in private equity, um, but in Australia we don't have it, and I just think that there's there's really something that can be done. And where you've got a small number of large asset pools, uh, you know, we really should be looking for ways to to allocate capital to that space and try and generate um, some sort of venture capital ecosystem. Um, albeit without necessarily, you know, I think this is our chance to kind of invent that space without imposing, you know, a more traditional third-party fee model over the top. Now, one of the activities you do is you're a director uh, of a fintech company. One of them is uh, Open Invest. What is your interest there in, in, in this particular space? So, so that was much more specific in the asset management space. And, and, you know, we talked about some of the issues that active asset managers or just asset managers generally were facing, you know, and the rise of large asset pools, particularly in Australia, making the institutional market, um, you know, less of a source of, of, of funds for them. But at the same time in the, you know, what I'd call sort of the retail and wholesale markets, You've seen this this real explosion in SMSFs and and so forth, and and I would say actually a large amount of um, uh, professional or non professionally invested assets, and so the idea behind Open Invest is to have a simple mechanism through which people can allocate to a diversified portfolio and get a lot of the benefits that come from a more traditional portfolio structure, but 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 build it very cheaply. Um, you know, one of the things that gets me is when I look sort of you know all the regulation and other things that have gone on in Australia in the retail marketplace, um, you know, Royal Commission and so forth. 
you know, the, the, the cost to member hasn't really gone down. And it's like, well, you know, surely we can build things, particularly with technology, that deliver professionally managed portfolios to individuals at a much cheaper cost. And that's that's the concept behind Open Invest. It's, it's an interesting model because I think it, it shows what a lot of fintech companies trying to do in the sense that you have sort of a traditional model where you have a distribution platform, you have the asset management space, but then there's elements incorporated of social media like features. So you can like things, you can share things. In essence, what, what is happening there is that you try to create communities around um, certain products or, or services. Is that sort of what, what what interests you or is it more directly coming from the SMS? So, so the, the point to me is really about, you know, simple, well-designed portfolios being delivered to the general public in a, in a relatively cheap format. And I think that's, you know, we're, we're great at creating themes and, you know, charging, you know, probably excessive fees for that as, as, as an industry to individual consumers and trying to stir up, um, you know, momentum around um, yeah, those particular themes or concepts. Whereas actually what I think we really should be doing, particularly with a more fiduciary uh, type of mindset is simple, you know, typical balance type portfolios uh, that are well diversified and well structured, and delivering them at a at a you know at a, at a pretty reasonable fee. Um, and that's the concept. And you know, with that, you need to have things like content layers that 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 sort of give you all of the right sort of behavioural impact with your customers and so forth, and deliver the messages out there in the right way. But the real premise is you have to do all that sort of stuff to deliver. A yeah. simple, well-diversified, professionally managed portfolio at a mm. cheap cost. Yeah, absolutely. But I was also thinking about that struggle for getting people's attention. And it can be very powerful to have something that's just sitting on your phone and you can talk to other people and you basically can go there without necessarily having to invest in a fund. You just You can just check up on it. That must be a very powerful feature. I think well. so, yeah. And I mean, clearly, the, you know, social media... Um, more generally is is changing the whole way in which consumers interact with each other, way in which they interact with their parties, and that will continue. People will come up with new ways and, um, of, of, of delivering content to the end customer. Um, you know, things like Web 3.0 and, and things blockchain and so forth could even mean that, you know, some platforms um, are no longer... Uh, the right delivery mechanism for for all sorts of content because it becomes much more individual to individual. Um, but I but yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing is an explosion in the way people want to interact, and definitely you know, have to look at my kids. You know, they spend an awful lot of time <laughs> looking at their phones and interacting through their phones, um, and it's just it's the norm. <laughs> yes. So you just mentioned the fiduciary side as well, and uh, you've joined the asset owner side as well with T Corp. Can you tell me a little bit about how you uh, came to T Corp and uh, what your role is there? Uh, yeah, so I've joined uh, New South Wales Treasury Corporation as a non-executive director. Um, I was lucky enough to get approached by them uh, in my sort of last few months at Troders when it was, you know, all very public that I was retiring from executive life. And um, I think it just turned out to be a, a good fit. I mean, T Corp is a fantastic organisation that's going through um, some pretty fundamental changes, particularly in the investment model, um, as a result, you know, of the merger between uh, what was WorkHub now I care uh, state super and the original T Corp portfolios and now it's you know looking at a um, an asset size in excess of a hundred billion dollars um, and it needs to be managed in, in that form so it's a really exciting time to be there the team's been built out 
Um, it's 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 a great role. So as well as being a non-exec, I'm also chair of the uh, board investment committee. Yeah, the executive team seem to have a real drive to build us out into a, a global quality asset management firm, uh, um, coming from sort of that more sleepy government organization probably but yeah I probably wouldn't describe it necessarily as sleepy but but certainly you know quieter and the asset size was significantly smaller if you go back five years and I just think that that you know we've seen a, a pretty fundamental change in their business or driven by the right sort of economics and um, and that's a great time to be there and be involved in the transition there's also you know it's a very interesting business T-Corp because it's also the, the the government's debt issuing authority so it's it's got a very large Large, uh, you know, um, issuance side to the to the balance sheet as well. So it's a fundamentally different organisation to mo- most um, asset owners. In that you've got you know these two fairly large parts to the business. So it took a while to get your head around all the different moving parts. I would say some of it you're still getting your head around. <laughs> you always are, but I think you know that's the that's the great thing about you know these sorts of roles and the challenges from in you know and particularly in moving from a third-party asset manager to an asset owner. There's um, you learn new things all the time. Yeah. So what else is on the agenda for you? Um, so you, you you have directorships. Um, can we see you at any other roles? In uh, <laughs> well, I, I think in terms of sort of building out a portfolio, you'll you'll see me pop up. I suspect in, in one or two other places um, as, as a as in a, in a non-executive um, or advisory type capacity. Uh, as well as that, I've got some personal business interests with the family, um, which which keep us occupied for a little bit of the time. And as I said, that you know the whole thing we talked about in terms of the the venture capital space is something um, that, that that interests me in terms of helping you know build out that ecosystem in Australia, and I think you know it's it's a it's a really exciting time in 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 my career to be involved in a whole range of different things um, rather than you know sort of singly in one sort of more commercial type arrangement. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, Greg, thank you very much for your time. It was good speaking to you. Thanks, Vada. It was great. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.